Hi everyone, welcome to the new Road Rage. Thanks for being with us, whatever it is that you're doing today. I hope you're enjoying the hell out of it. I'm your host, Sarah Berry, and today I'm really lucky to be speaking with Deneen Rowe. And well, I'll let her introduce herself. So, my name is Deneen Rowe. I am a I'm born and bred Londoner, South Londoner to be specific. Always have to be specific. And I work for a think tank. Um, so politically independent. And I've always been quite politically engaged. But over the past couple of years, that focus has definitely moved more towards how we live in amongst the built environment. Mm-hmm. So when I first started at Centre for London, that was like four years ago, um, I was, I would probably say my main focus was on getting more Londoners who looked and sound and roughly earned as much as me on the housing ladder. And that's sort of a concern of mine, but especially with COVID happening and me spending a lot more time in my hyper local area in Lambeth, um, I sort of narrowed in on oh wow there's a lot of road space for cars here and oh this is how it's all designed this is a bit odd okay and then I started having those conversations at work because luckily working at a think tank it's it's sort of fun to have those conversations it's encouraged um yeah so and connected with you got involved with the um group and now I'm sort of working on bringing that more into my work you said you're born and bred south london yeah what what sort of changes have you seen happen in south london in your in your lifetime i'm always fascinated to hear from people who've been here for a long time um it's always been a largely diverse part of london especially um my part of lambeth it's there was a huge lgbtqia plus community here which i love (laughs) um there is a lot of Portuguese speaking communities. I say speaking because it's not just Portugal. Um, that's great. Um, and that sort of stayed consistent, I feel. But one of the major things has been a load of new developments. It's been a lot of house building um, ongoing in the area. And that, that's not inherently bad. We do need more houses in London. We need more places for people to live. But it definitely feels like it's become more difficult for me to see myself being able to buy and therefore live here longer term. When I was growing up, I thought that would be a possibility. And so if if I wanted to move further away, it's because I just wanted to be further away from my parents. Um, (laughs) But I think now... Uh, sort of through the years and the older I get the more I sort of think oh I don't know if that's possible for me uh and that I think's quite sad but also real. I'm sorry to hear that and I know you're not the only Londoner who's struggling with the inaccessibility of the housing market right now. I want to hear a little bit more about what you said about the changes so What have you noticed about the changes in the cars and the traffic in the built environment over the years that you've lived in South London? So when we first 
moved here. So I lived um, in Kennington. I lived on the main road for the first 10 years of my life. So I was, I've always sort of been used to being quite close to cars. Um, mm -hmm. And then when we moved to where we live now, which isn't further away, um, but is on a side road, there were actually probably more cars here because we didn't have CPZs. I'm going to jump in here for just a second to explain what a CPZ is. A CPZ, for those who don't know, is a controlled parking zone. Think of it as an area where there's no free-for-all when it comes to parking. Councils decide that only residents and their guests can park there, and even though they have to buy a permit to do so, it means that they're more or less likely to be able to find a parking space when they need one. So you didn't have residence permits, so people would, because we live quite close to a few tube stations, people would, or at least my impression of it was that people would drive here, leave their cars, go off and then come back. How that's ch how that changed over the years um, was as the CPZs came in, it meant more residents would come and park their cars here, which I suppose isn't good or bad. Um, but what I've, I think COVID, what that definitely changed was there were a few, towards the beginning when people were still sort of deciding if they were going to stay in London or maybe go back to stay with parents or whatever because they didn't know how long it was going to continue for. There were, I saw so many people packing up and he and, and heading off and then, and that sort of made me think, wow, there's a lot of people here who, I, I, I didn't have that as an option. I sort of took it as a given that most mm. people would probably stay. Um, but when I saw so many people up and go, it, it sort of made me feel quite sad. It made me feel that things are a bit more transient. Um, which isn't uncommon for a city like London. It's not at all. But it also made me feel a bit like, oh, the people, the people are going. Um, even if yeah. I don't speak to them, I sort of still feel like, well, we, you know, we live in the area. Are you? I see you around. Where are you going? Um, yeah. So that's been a bit, yeah. That that's been a bit weird. I've noticed recently that they have definitely started to come back. There are fewer spaces for cars other cars to come in so it feels like it's sort of starting back up again um but i am especially on the side road seeing a few more sort of cyclists and different use of road space but it feels like the car the car usage is coming back so i know you spend a lot of your time thinking about housing do you think that there's a connection between how we design our housing and how people use their cars we did some work uh, on this a while ago looking at how you design to encourage active travel rather than sort of discourage mm -hmm. car use um i think the fact that there is so much space allocated to cpz's around here means that more people will more people will see that as an option whereas i've seen on other estates that or other parts mm -hmm. of London that don't have that you see you see fewer cars because it just isn't an option so if you mm -hmm. design with space for cars in mind people will use it even though there is good access to transport here it's not always as consistent I think and I think of people who have sort of disabilities um but on the whole the transport access is really good so do you need a car probably not 
but if you give that space to it people will use it so moving away from that i think is a really important thing i think it helps and when you see that in new developments i think people adapt to that really well because it is a big trend at the moment isn't it that new develop a lot of new developments in london are built without yeah. parking spaces yeah. for residents and do you in your in your experience has that been a controversial thing has that been i don't i don't think so i think um i think a lot of the, a lot of people who are moving into those developments are people who are looking for like starter homes or first homes first or second mm -hmm. so they probably don't have cars um so it's not seen as an odd thing that you wouldn't have a parking space there and some of them also have sort of in-betweens where they have um like a, a space for like a zip car or something like that which actually mm -hmm. i think is quite a decent medium you know i i don't think there's a frustration on on that side of it i think the 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 bigger frustration is probably people who sometimes get given the term NIMBYs, not in my backyards. So people who don't, who aren't keen on density or new developments. I think that is a bigger issue versus whether there's car spaces or not. And also if there's access to transport, because you can build a nice, beautiful development and say, okay, we're not going to have parking spaces. But if you don't have the infrastructure around that to support it, we're sort of off to a loss already. So what have you noticed about how people are reacting to low traffic neighbourhoods in Lambeth? Low traffic neighbourhoods are definitely a hot, a hot button issue. Um, but they're not new. Even in Lambeth, um, I think of an example, as an example, something like Cleaver Square, uh, which mm -hmm. is just off, for people who don't know, it's just off Kennington Park Road, which is a big arterial road that leads you onto the A3. Um, not maybe six or seven minute walk from the tube station, loads of buses run through it. Cleaver Square has blocked off traffic from the main road for as long as I can remember. And I lived there in the late 80s. Um, and there are also other side roads around it that have a similar structure. So the idea of um, blocking off traffic or, or not having all roads be through roads is not new. I think a lot of the disruption focusing in on Lambeth I think has been quite interesting because if we also be discussing housing if you mm -hmm. take that as an example in terms of people's reactions to it and new developments and density it's quite it's easier to sort of map people's disagreements with it it tends to be across boroughs of the same types of groups sometimes of people and similar disagreements with it's it's a suburb, we like to keep it as a suburb or gentrification type arguments. So they're, they're quite similar, they're quite broad. What I've found mm -hmm. with LTNs, especially in Lambeth, and what I think is quite interesting, is that people who are either pro or, or people who disagree with them come from a range of different groups whether it's socioeconomics or ethnicities, it's so broad. So I think one of the difficulties, and it's why I'm so interested in doing work on it, is figuring out exactly who those groups of people are, because I think that's probably one of the ways that you can work to bring people on board with it, is figuring out who, are, who exactly are these people who disagree with it? How many of them are there? Mm -hmm. So one of the 
the first arguments that I saw um, was people feeling like the introduction of low traffic neighbourhoods is something that had been done to them and not for them. Um, so I yeah. think about, for example, the low traffic neighbourhood on Fentiman Road, which is one of my favourite roads. I love mm -hmm. it so much. So when the low traffic neighbourhood was and sort of, um, sprung up in there, I'm a driver. I wasn't that fussed about it. Um, okay. But I think a lot of people on neighbouring roads felt like they they couldn't see the immediate benefits of it. And one of them made so one of them made was, well, this works for you on this very particular road, but it doesn't work for us. Um and that that is probably a big issue. I think the second part of it was the consultation process, which I, I think mm -hmm. is part of a bigger problem that has almost always existed with boroughs, developers, housing associations and residents feeling like there hasn't been a proper consultation. I think but I think it's important to note that I don't know what the perfect idea of that would be is the thing. I don't know if there is a perfect introduction for Elchins that would work for absolutely everyone. Um, but if you look at like Waltham Forest as an example of it and Mini Holland, which has been really successful by most counts, that was done over years so i i think mm. there's there's probably something in it being a bit more of a slower race but then on the other hand if you don't sort of put these things in and get them started when when do you do it right i mean the pollution and everything is affecting people all the time right and the funding was there and also i think if you look at Lambeth particularly, there's a huge Afro-Caribbean population here, uh, which I'm a part of. I think it's sometimes what gets lost in the conversation is owning a car is a status symbol. Being able to have access to the car, a lot of the time it's not just your car, it's, well, my daughter can take me, I'm saying that because I am a daughter, my daughter can take me to the shop or... Mm -hmm. You know, Deneen can drop you off here or there, whether it's to shop, whether it's to church, whether it's to see, you know, an auntie or, or something like that. It's also a really easy way to let bigger, not bigger, but a uh, family from abroad, let's say, which I have, know. Oh, look, here's a photo clip. Deneen's got a car, see, she's doing well. And I think that's still in the back of people's minds. So telling people, oh, no, actually, it's better for you and the environment if you move away from that to walking and cycling I think is something that we still need to tackle and anything that makes that a bit more difficult I think automatically gets some people's backs up. So why do you think the car in particular is such an important status symbol for the um, community? So I if I uh, narrow in on my family sort of others around me so my grandparents didn't go to university my parents didn't but I did uh and that was great and wonderful but one of the but you don't earn money at least not immediately for being a student right but having a car and the fact that my parents were able to get that for me and set me up with insurance and whatever 
was an easy way to show to other relatives that we as a family were doing well. And that the fact that I had my own car, that was a way to say, well, yeah, we're all doing well. We could afford to get Dean a car. Dean could afford to drive around and have a car. That I think it's true for a lot in terms of class as well, because class and race cross over quite a bit. So many higher earning sort of jobs and positions and the benefits that come with that, that a lot of um, black, I, was, I hesitate to use the word BAME because it lumps us all together. So I feel more comfortable saying Afro-Caribbean because that falls more relevant to me. Those things fall sometimes so far out of the way, owning a car doesn't. And it's it's a way of sort of buying in, buying into it in a way that's a bit more accessible to you. So if you own a car, you, you're buying into that success. You don't have all of the benefits that mm-hmm. other more privileged groups have, but you own a car. Quite a bit of money that goes into it, even if you buy it mm-hmm. secondhand, a few thousands, and then the upkeep of it. But if you can afford to do that, it shows, okay, well, you, you must be doing well. And then also on a small, uh, on a side note, as a, uh, as a woman, I've lived in London all my life. I do feel relatively safe, but not always. Um, and mm-hmm. traveling, most of my friends don't live around me. Um, they live, I often travel across London and the access yeah. on the other part of London isn't great. And most of the time I'm traveling home on my own. So there are, I think sometimes that there is that feeling of knowing, okay, but if I'm in my car, even if I don't feel 100% safe, having the car around me, you know, doors locked and everything, I feel that, okay, well, I'm probably going to be okay because I'm just, I'm in, I'm in the car, doors locked. There is that feeling of safety mm-hmm. that I don't necessarily always feel on public transport. How do you think we could have done this better? Do you think that there's a way that we could have had these conversations with the Afro-Caribbean community who who see this as a status symbol um, in a way that didn't get people's backs up? I think if I was speaking really honestly, a few a few years ago, I was having sort of similar conversations with people that I knew, and I was always a bit, oh well, you know, I've got, well, I've got my my car and I feel, I feel safer with it and I uh, just had sort of more of an attachment to it that has changed recently over time um but I do I think it is also important to point out that I do I do like the idea of LTNs and I think that they can work as part of the overall mission to encourage active travel and to make neighborhoods a nicer place to live alongside that though I do think that there are a few ways that it could have worked better. Consultation is always key and working with organisations that allow people to do that in really easy ways, whether it is sort of online or through sort of leaflets. And obviously I know over the past year and a half that would have been tremendously difficult. But in an I in an ideal world, you would push it in as many ways as you can whether it's online with consultations and showing people okay well this is a kind of neighborhood that we want people to see 
you know, you like to spend time with your family and outside, you know, maybe have like a barbecue or something. Well, we can have this. Having this LTN means you can do all of that. This is what your roads can be mm-hmm. versus we need to get more cars away. And I think that's what's been successful with Waltham Forest is, yes, they did the consultation over a longer period of time, but a lot of it was focused on what they were giving people back versus what they were taking away. Another part of it will be addressing the disparities in walking and cycling. There's still quite a big disparity in terms of walking and cycling in London among different ethnic groups whether it's targeted marketing towards those groups, but also putting in funds for the various community groups that are set up to help with that. So that Black Riders Association have recently received funding Mm -hmm. um, from the mayor that will allow them to go out to people in their own communities and people with similar backgrounds to get them into active travel. And I think supporting those people who are on the ground and in those communities and doing sort of active travel but in that ground grassroots way I think is actually another really good way to go about it and also a lot of people from Afro-Caribbean backgrounds especially in London are more likely to live in overcrowded accommodation which is just not not ideal for many different reasons so being able to tackle those issues by providing safe areas to look after bikes or scooters or what have you and looking at I don't know whether it's at lighting or something or the other that makes the area sort of feel a bit safer to people for those groups of people which is also another issue I think would help I don't think you're going to get I don't think the mission will be to get every single person on board I, th- I think you're onto a losing race there but I do think that putting those things in place would definitely help and help to bring people on board because that's what brought me around mm. it, it wasn't your car is you know really bad and cycling is great it was more like oh well you know you could have more places to sit on the road you might be able to have little street parties or whatever having that space for people versus cars is what again is what brought me around that space for the people not for cars i think that you're i think that that's such a powerful observation i remember when i got the letter from the council here explaining that they were introducing a low traffic neighborhood um you know i i have a lot of respect for the council yeah. i think that they've they've done a lot of great work with very little resources and you know not much time but also i remember reading that reading that letter and and thinking this doesn't even explain what a low traffic neighborhood is it doesn't explain what it's for and all it sort of says is like this road is closed you can't drive here you can't drive here you can't drive here and then the signage was so much sort of you know yeah the big red road closed signs, all of these things, there was just, you're so right in saying that, you know, there was no description of this is what you're going to get. This is the benefits. This is, this is what this is for. What do you think it is that makes walking and cycling so inaccessible to people of colour? If we look into not 
too distant history. So late seventies or eighties, law came a law came in. Um, it's called the Sus. It's known as Sus laws. So my dad grew up with that, and it essentially gave police the police the right to stop people who they thought looked suspicious. So, um, given the issues that we know are exists within the police force and systemic racism mm-hmm. that meant that people like my dad who's just a child like many other black boys in his area were consistently stopped by the police because they look suspicious which at that time meant they're black I think that mindset did seep into him in a way that it hasn't doesn't with other groups in that if you're going to run that risk of being stopped whenever you go out that means that when you do go out you should be going out for a reason so you go out because you're going to the shops then go back home sort of leisurely walks and whatever mm, that's too risky it's not worth it so when I was growing up um myself and many other people that I knew you wouldn't just go for a walk or you wouldn't just go to the park because that was a that was a risk and especially if there was a group of you my dad would always say don't go out in big groups because you're more likely to attract travel trouble then so go out in smaller groups don't just go out for no reason go to a friend's house fine but in terms of being out do it with a purpose so the idea of walking as leisure is almost like a foreign concept to to what at least it was to me and to my parents and with cycling now you see people sort of zooming around and it's not even just the light for brigades you see loads of different people out cycling and it looks great and fun and free but one of the main concerns about that was one where was the money gonna gonna come from to buy a bike it's a lot more accessible now lambeth has done i think really well on that so i was able to get my bike through one of the learning schemes um because i was working at the time and i was able to but that's a barrier to people who can't afford that um but i think it's even better now mm-hmm. um to the point where i think you can rent a bike for I think like something like £10 a month and sort of build up money towards purchasing it. But that's not accessible to everyone. I also live in a building where there isn't, or an area where there isn't a load of space to keep a bike. So that's also something to think about. If you're already having issues with sort of disproportionate wages, salary, whatever, and issues with that, the idea of putting money into something that, is potentially going to get stolen you would probably think well why would yeah. i put money into that yeah your car might get broken into but it's still going to be there it's probably not going to be stolen and also having that car especially if you're if you're from a, a group afro-caribbean where you you do for that has a parents for more of that hesitancy of something happening when you're out and feeling less safe and not necessarily feeling that the 
groups who are there to help you, the emergency services who are there to help are necessarily going to help you. Having a car, being in something that encloses you, makes you feel like, okay, I'm sending her out into the world, but she's in a car. She's got something around her, she'll be okay. Whereas just out on a bike, oh, I don't trust that. She's just out on her own. There could be anyone out there. Are the police going to help her? I don't think so. And also living, there's also that the bigger issues around it. So designing, looking at new places now and how you design them in areas to just naturally encourage people to cycle more. Great lighting for people to walk around and enjoy the area, which is, as you pointed out, one of the great things about LTNs. You can do that in an area that is already built up and already up and going, right? making that a part of new spaces and making spaces in buildings easy to get around with a bike. One of the major reasons why I was able to get mine is I just made a decision it's going to have to be affordable bike. And if it's not that, I can't do it. But that's not accessible to everyone. One of the big issues here is the fact that over a very, very long time, councils and governments and police forces and, and all of these institutions have really eroded the trust that these communities have in them. And a lot of these schemes are relying on sort of saying, trust that this is going to work, trust that this is going to be to your benefit, which obviously is incredibly difficult when all yeah. of your trust is, is gone and for good reason. If you're listening to Janine speak here and wondering what it is you can do to help, she gave me a list of great organisations that you can support. There's Black Riders Association, there's Joy Riders, there's Jules Walker, there's Rundum Crew. All of these I'll put links to in the show notes so that you can go and check them out. And please consider donating if you can. There's one other thing that Deneen said helped her get on the bike. Getting the free lessons from your borough, they're free. They're open to a lot of boroughs in London. And a lot of them can give you a bike to try out. So even if you can't afford one, sign up to that. It's a one-on-one. And I learned when I was an adult, I didn't learn how to ride a bike until I was 27. So you can get out get out there, you know. You, you don't have to feel like you're immediately like out, out on the road and sort of stumbling all over the place. So if you can find a group, great. If not, sign up with the council, do the one-on-one lessons so you won't you won't feel like it's you as an adult, potentially, and a bunch of like six-year-olds. It's not like that. So seek out, seek out those people. We're out there. All right, so this is the part of the podcast where we talk about something that's been in the news this week related to this. And, and a lot of you might have seen the fact that a £27 billion expansion of England's road network um, has been thrown into doubt after documents have shown that the Transport Secretary Grant Shapps overrode official advice to review the policy on environmental grounds. Um, we're not entirely sure as to what that advice said and, and what he what he ignored of it. Um, but, you know, I think it is it was surprising to a lot of people, um, you know, cite the scientific community, the, the climate advocacy community, that a 27 billion pound road expansion could go alongside the UK meeting our our sort of climate goals. Um, Deneen, coming at this from a from a policy perspective, I know that you spend a lot of your time thinking about policy. 
Um, do you think it's what? What's your take? People are listening to the word to see my face, but there was definitely a uh, um, re- re- reaction to it. So I suppose the, I mean the whole point <laughs> of having advisors and people around you is that they give you the sort of data and evidence-driven stuff so that you can make a decision from that and that follows sort of that clear and helpful advice. So to to go against that was something that I thought seemed quite not odds, but I just didn't understand why. It does seem difficult to understand, you know, what his what his long term thinking was there. I'm interested in hearing your perspective because for me, looking at the policies of this government right now, it definitely feels like they're not entirely sure what they're doing. So, you know, on the one hand, we've got these the Silvertown Tunnel, £27 billion worth of roads that are going to be built all across the country. On the other hand, you know, we're being told we've got to leave our cars at home, that air pollution is terrible and we need to fix that, that, um, you know, Grant Shapps, the same the same week that this news came out, said that he has ambitions for 50% of journeys in towns and cities to be walked or cycled by 2030. That's only nine years away. Um what's do, do, is this sort of policy inconsistency uh, normal yes um i, I think one of the issues <laughs> that comes up a lot in the built environment with where you're looking at housing and transport they often come under two completely different teams so whilst to the everyday person they think well you're in the same government why wouldn't everything work together and in sync it's not uncommon for there to be sort of two different routes or plans working within the same government, whether it's central or local. But I, I don't necessarily think that they're as um, exclusive as we've seen in some news articles. So getting people to move away from driving in towns and cities and onto walking and cycling is a great plan. And for most towns and cities, I think that is probably quite realistic, especially if we're looking at more localised time and whatever. Um, But looking at the spending on roads, I think some of the articles that I saw, there was a lot of arguing from environmental groups that a lot of these sort of new roads, I'm thinking of the one that was going to go underground near Stonehenge. Um, And I've been to Stonehenge and I, it's a, great pride to us it's a wonderful place and so you want to keep that uh as unchanged and as natural as possible when i went there i also took my car there uh because the transport there is not ideal um i didn't see any uh bikes or buses or anything getting down i think most people probably do still travel there by some sort of vehicle and there was a long bottleneck that goes on for quite a long time, which probably isn't helped by the way that the road is designed at the moment. So putting money into finding ways for roads to work better isn't necessarily the antithesis of getting more people to walk and cycle. So putting, yeah, so putting money and investment into making better roads and I think about also freight and deliveries of goods which a lot of these roads will be used for if you can make it 
better and easier for those very specific so not just me driving up and down but very specific services mm -hmm. is not a bad thing so we're coming to the end of the show and you might remember if you listened last week that this is the time where we like to focus on something to be hopeful about some good news I don't want listeners of this podcast to think that everything is all doom and gloom and that we'll never agree and good things can't happen because that's not true at all. So I asked Deneen to have a look around and find something that made her hopeful. Here's what she had to say. So C-Sense, um, which is an organisation that provides uh, technology, sensor technology to make the environment safer for cyclists, but to also help decision makers make it easier to get more people on board cycling. Um, are going to put together some research uh, in celebration of International Women's Day to get more women cycling. Um, it's going to provide insights on the experience of female cyclists using the technology in the goods that they sell. So I think the things that they're most popular for is lights, bike lights. Um, and it will be provided free of charge to TfL um, to help them learn about whether it's routes that women are more likely to take because they're safer for them, also routes that women avoid, how can it be made safer, um, and the disparities between men and women cycling. So I think that's a bit of good news because putting money and investment into learning, into finding out what the root causes are behind those issues and exploring them is always a good thing. And I'm happy to see uh, money and resources go towards that. And that's it. The end of our show for today. I hope you've enjoyed listening to and learning from Deneen. I know I certainly did. If you enjoyed this podcast today or in general, I'd be so grateful if you could subscribe wherever you listen to your podcasts. And to give us a good review on Apple Podcasts too, it would really make a massive difference in helping people find the show. You can also follow us on social media. I'm on Sarah J underscore Berry um, and the podcast itself is at, at New Road Rage. And I'll speak to you next time. I hope you have a fantastic week. Thanks, everyone.